remember I was wanting to share with you about my, uh, about my Florida experience a few years ago. My wife and I went uh, to Florida for a few days. And uh, that's when I experienced uh, some of the most confusing situations in my life. At one point of our trip, we were looking for a particular location. We got a little lost. We found ourselves in some sort of an industrial area. I don't even remember what's around what city that was. Uh, but it was kind of a uh, warehouse, company, buildings area. And so naturally, uh, we were looking for someone to give us directions. Uh, now, uh, mind this, this was before our phones got really smart. So, finally, we see someone on the street, right, by one of those commercial whatever buildings, and, uh, and I'm getting excited, so we pull over. The gentleman was very helpful. He was passionate about helping us find our way. Except that every time he said, turn right, he was pointing to the left. And he said, turn left, he was pointing to the right. That got me really confused. I thought I was having a Bulgarian experience because back in my country, now you may not believe this, but you can Google it when you go home. When we say yes, we do it the other way with the hands, with the head. So when we say yes, it's like this. And when we say no, it's like this. And so for a split second, I thought, are we, where are we? I thought we were in Florida. And I thought they might have their own way in Florida to do those things, to give direction. But we thanked the guy and we took off and we were more confused than we were before we left. Life is full of moments when we get lost. We find ourselves in situations that we didn't quite solicit, if you want. A lot of times we're in distress, we're overwhelmed. In our relationship with God, we often struggle. We don't understand the what's, the why's, the how's of God and how God works and how God operates. We don't quite get His plan sometimes. But we're not the first ones to experience this. The disciples of Jesus went through series of moments when they felt out of place. They could not understand exactly what Jesus was telling them. They could not wrap their minds around what Jesus was doing. And this morning, I want us to look at a situation when the disciples of Jesus found themselves in serious distress and confusion. <coughs> I want us to explore the way Jesus treated them. What precedent is that setting for us? What can we learn from that interaction between Jesus and his disciples. We're going to look at a situation from the last moments of the disciples with Jesus, right before Jesus was arrested and crucified. We find this account in the second part of the Gospel of John. I know uh, Mike Beatty's been waiting for this moment ever since I started talking to you. As we have our little saying, it's Mike always asks me, what are you going to preach? And I say, it's going to be from the Bible. So, he didn't have a chance to ask me this morning, but uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of John. 
And so we're going to look at a portion of uh, John chapter 13 and 14, uh, towards the end of 13, but then also uh, part really from chapter 14. And this is part of a chain of events, uh, interactions between Jesus and his disciples. In fact, the, this section starts really around the beginning of chapter 13. Uh, that beginning introduces us to a pivotal moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. Chapter 13, verse 1 says, It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. This is really a breaking point. Throughout his ministry, Jesus very often told people, Don't tell anybody. And the gospel writers commented more than once. He said this because his time, his hour had not yet come. In fact, Jesus telling people had a reason, telling them maybe he heals someone and says, don't, don't tell anybody, just keep it to yourself. And you, it makes you wonder, why would he do that? With the reason. Wouldn't you want to actually get more fame and more popularity? Uh, get the message out there? Wouldn't that be something we would do in church? Something happens, we call the newspaper. But Jesus did exactly the opposite. Uh, one of the simple reasons, I believe, was that uh, he did not want his own popularity to become a hindrance for his ministry. Because people already knew him quite a bit in any area he would go. And so more and more people would know, more and more people would get hyped and excited and they would go out on the streets and that would actually prevent him from moving around freely and doing the ministry uh, without uh, those hindrances all around him. But here, the gospel writer notes it very well. He says that his hour, finally, his time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. And so, in light of his impending arrest and death, all the things that Jesus could do, he spends those last moments with his disciples. And yet, for them, that turns out to be a time that is very troubling. Their expectations undergo some re-evaluation and adjustment. Their hopes are examined. Their commitment to Jesus is challenged. The disciples are gathered in what is called the upper room with Jesus, and they're celebrating this Jewish feast of Passover, when the Jewish nation celebrated, commemorated that time when God spared their homes and their children, uh, when they were slaves going out of Egypt. And here Jesus teaches them a powerful lesson on servanthood. They're gathered together and he takes a towel and a basin full of water and kneels down and washes their feet. <laughs> I almost feel what the disciple, disciples must have experienced at that moment. Jesus lowering himself and doing, taking the job, doing what the lowest servant, slave in the house would have done. It's a powerful lesson by demonstration. We call that an object lesson. 
This must have impressed on their heart very strongly that essence of humility, of service, of love, of care. Just another brilliant gem revealing to them the character of Jesus, his mind, and his heart. And it's at that moment, right then, that Jesus drops the bomb. He tells them that one of them will betray him. Can you imagine the disciples' faces at that moment? Can you sense the heaviness that is saturating the air in that upper room at that moment? I can almost see John looking at the others and thinking, I, I wouldn't think it would be Peter. Matthew is a decent guy, but you never know. Is it Matthew? And then maybe Bartholomew or someone else is sitting there. I wouldn't think any of those guys would, but could that be me? What does Jesus say here? That's not quite what the disciples have planned on hearing. That's not what they quite expected to experience in that upper room. Not only that, but Jesus later tells them that he's going somewhere where they cannot follow him. And that's where we get plugged into the story a little bit. So John chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus tells them, Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, you and I know what's going to happen later in the story. If, if you've read through the Gospels, so you've sat in church and you've, had some, uh, you've heard some sermons and messages on the story of Jesus and uh, how the story ends, we know where Jesus is going. We know that he's going to be betrayed, arrested, tried, and crucified. But the disciples don't quite know that. And so Peter jumps in and asks for clarification. I think that's what I would have done. I'd say, can you explain this to me? Because I'm not quite getting it. In our days, it would be like, text me. Tell me what's going on. Send me something on Messenger. Clarify. Can you make this clear? What do you mean? What are you trying to tell us here? And then Jesus goes on and says, uh, well, Peter asks really, Lord, where are you going? Where are you going? And then Jesus answers, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why cannot not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. <laughs> and Jesus answered, will you lay your life down for me? <laughs> truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Uh, we have to commend Peter for his boldness. 
But can you imagine what's going on through the minds of the disciples? If Peter, who was one of the leading disciples, he was somewhat of a spokesman for that group. He was one of the closest individuals to Jesus. Later on, we see him emerge in the early church after the resurrection as the spokesman, as the, one of the pillars of the early church. Can you imagine if, if Peter is going to deny Jesus, the disciples are probably thinking, what about us? If he would fall that low, what about me? It is a troubling time for the disciples. They are confused. They are distressed. They are just like you and me when we don't understand what God is doing in our lives. They are just like you and me when we cannot humanly grasp the move of the Holy Spirit in advancing God's kingdom. When God's actions don't quite make sense to us. They're just like you and me when we fail to recognize God's plan in our lives, God's plan for our community and our church. When we cannot fathom that God's picture is much bigger and greater than what we can possibly conceive of. They're just like you and me when God does not seem to be willing to perform according to our plans according to our own expectations. The disciples are confused. They are distressed. But Jesus, in the midst of contemplating His own circumstances, His own impending death, He turns to them. He comforts them. He reassures them. He strengthens them. He's there to solidify their faith right now. And so we finally get to chapter 14. And uh, I'm going to pause for a second just to remind you that uh, the chapter divisions and the verse divisions, as I've said it before, you'd remember that, but I want to emphasize this again and again, that those are not part of the original text. Those chapter divisions and verse divisions were introduced by publishers to help us find our way through Scripture. So when I say uh, we're going to look at John chapter 14, verse 1, you know where to find it. You open your Bible if you use a hard copy, or Jason's more advanced than any of us. He's always on his phone. But you can just write down or search your verse, and it pops up. And so really, the text flows further from chapter 13. There's no break there. But in chapter 14... Verse 1, this is what Jesus tells them. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. The first thing to note is that uh, he's addressing all the disciples. He's no longer speaking just to Peter. Uh, really like the, the, the Greek text, if you had to translate it literally in a, with a little southern flair, would be, let not all y'all's heart be troubled. I'm sure you'd appreciate it. I've worked hard on this. <laughs> I have to submit to you that uh, Microsoft Word does not speak Southern. <laughs> because when I put all y'all, it underlines it with, with the red wine. 
like as if it's, you know, autocorrect tells you this is not right. So I try to argue with it, but at least doesn't print it that way. But this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, let not all your heart be troubled. Believe in me just as you believe in God. Just as you trust in God, trust now in what I'm telling you. Trust now in who I am. And then uh, we get to verses 2 and 3. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You see, Jesus is going to get things ready for the next stage. Scholars here are debating, uh, what is Jesus exactly talking about? Some scholars think that uh, he's talking about his second coming. That he's going to leave one time and then one day he will return. But if you look at the context of this whole interaction from chapter 13 through 14 and 15 and 16, including and even into 17, you would figure out that Jesus is really focused on his arrest and his death, his crucifixion. And then ultimately, we know from the story that he will rise from the dead and come back to meet the disciples on several occasions, those 12 or 11 at the time, and then and then a bunch of others. So most probably Jesus here is referring to his death on the cross. It was on the cross that this preparation for the next stage would occur. It was there at the cross that Jesus declared, it is finished. It is done. It is completed. That's it. You see, such words of encouragement are not unusual in situations of distress and anxiety. But what Jesus is doing here, he's not merely trying to calm the fears, to quiet the anxieties of his disciples by saying something nice, something comforting to them. That's what we would do sometimes when we try to counsel someone and help them in a difficult situation. We try to choose some nice words, and sometimes we say the stupidest thing in the world in those cases. People are doing really bad, and, and we say it's going to be all right. But it's not all right for them right now at that moment. But Jesus gives them the reason to be calm. He gives them the reason because he knows the next steps. He knows what follows in the story. He promises them that he will complete his course. He will fulfill his calling. He will not shy away from the cross. But he will willingly give his life for them. And he will prepare everything so they could continue their journey into eternity. Just a little further, Jesus tells them that He will come back after the resurrection and that they will receive the Holy Spirit. 
It's then that God Himself, through the Holy Spirit, will dwell in them. And here comes the turning point in the whole interaction. Verse 4, Jesus says, And you know the way to where I'm going. And you know the way to where I'm going. <laughs> if you notice, Jesus states it as a fact. There is a presumption in what he says. The presumption is that they do know the way. That they do understand what is going to unfold a few hours later. It makes you wonder, why isn't Jesus asking them? He could have said, hey, uh, I know you've been around me for a while, but do you know the way now? Do you get it? Do you understand it? Why is Jesus implying that they knew the way? I think it's because they've been with him for the most part of three to three and a half years. He's already told them what would come ahead. He warned them about his death. Earlier, he makes them aware that he will die. In John chapter 12, at one place, he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And just a few, few verses later, still in John chapter 12, he says, And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. But then Thomas, one of the twelve, interjects. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? See, Thomas is a great guy. We, we know him as Doubting Thomas, right? At the end of the story when he wasn't quite sure about the resurrection and whether Jesus really was alive again. He was uh, one of those empirical guys. He wanted to touch and sense and feel. A lot of us are like that. Uh, you know, we wouldn't buy anything unless we see it. I remember when, uh, you know, I first started getting books on Amazon or, you know, online. It was the weirdest experience because you're buying something you don't see. I, I had never been used to that. You'd go to a bookstore, you go to a regular store, grocery shopping or anything, and you touch it, you feel it, you, you read it, you see if the seal is broken, you see the expiration date, you see the ingredients if it's a, some food or something. But it's a touchy experience, right? People these days buy cars without even seeing them. I'm not there yet. It might take me another 50 years to get there. But you buy a house without even seeing it. I have friends who've done this. And so Thomas is very logical. You have to know where you're going so you can figure out how to get there. I can guarantee you Thomas must have had the prototype for the modern GPS. Because you figure it out, if you put the destination, then you can figure out the direction and the way to get there. Thomas is operating from 
his growing experience with Jesus, his growing knowledge, but still lacking, still insufficient understanding of spiritual matters. He doesn't fully grasp the things of the kingdom of God, even though he and the other disciples have been with Jesus for three years. Day in and day out, they were around him. Day in and day out, they observed him. Day in and day out, they could see how he lived, how he ministered, how he healed, how he cast out demons out of people. Uh, these 12 must have been the 12 people that heard Jesus the most in his preaching, teaching, and anything he did. And still they're not quite where they need to be in their spiritual understanding. But that seems to be fine. When you read the Gospels, I, I find this really fascinating. And I think we miss that aspect and that point. When you read the Gospels that describe the life and the words and the ministry of Jesus, we shouldn't miss the point that the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that they do not simply do a presentation, just a historical account of what happened. But in fact, they do a presentation from their own perspective, the way they themselves experienced their journey, their encounter with Jesus. And that's why you see differences in the Gospels, because of that perspective. They help us get a glimpse on, into how they themselves made progress on their spiritual journey as a result of meeting Jesus and following him for about three, three and a half years. You see, they're learning. That's the essence of discipleship. A disciple is a learner. I believe I've said this many times before, but I'm going to say it again. A disciple is simply a learner, a student, someone who is ready to learn and to follow the teacher. One of my seminary professors used to say, it's okay to be ignorant. It's not okay to remain ignorant. And that's the essence of discipleship. There's a lot of things that we don't know and we don't understand, just like those disciples. But Jesus gives them the opportunity to learn as they follow. The Christian life is a journey, a journey of learning. And so Jesus says to Thomas those famous words. I'm sure that if I came to some of your houses, I'd find it at least in a few houses where you have something on a wall or something of, of that nature, a little, a little monument that you put on a table or something uh, that would say uh, those same words that Jesus addresses to Thomas. I even doubt that we realized that this was what was happening, that he was strictly speaking to Thomas at that point. But he says... I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So you see, Jesus comforts his disciples, but not just with some nice words and uplifting words. He's comforting them by revealing to them more about himself and more about God the Father. You see, nothing is more comforting than to know God for, he, for who He truly is 
and to know Him fully. Jesus says, I am the way. I can guarantee you that those Jewish disciples at the time, for them, it wasn't very hard to hear the echo from the Old Testament when God Himself identified His name as the I Am. I am who I am. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but God doesn't quite have a name. Not Mike or Claudia and Stefan and Jim and Jason and Leora and Evelyn. We have names. We have personal names, but it's not quite the same with God. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Because when Moses was asking God how he should introduce him back to the Israelites in slavery in Egypt so he can lead them out of slavery, God simply said, I am who I am. I am. I am just who I am. I don't quite have a name. I'm just God. That's it. I am. And it's interesting because Jesus is using those same I am statements. And I can guarantee you that for those Jewish people around him, it was a reflection of something that was deeply ingrained in their minds. Because when they heard the words, I am, they knew exactly what those words meant. And it's interesting because the Gospel of John in particular records a number of those statements from the mouth of Jesus. They're called the I am statements. The Gospel of John is known for, uh, for that pattern where John uh, intentionally, on, on purpose, includes seven of those statements. I am such and such. I am so and so. And here we have one of those gems when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And you know, as I was studying and uh, reflecting on the meaning of what Jesus is saying here, I, I realized that we can easily get sidetracked uh, when we're trying to pinpoint whether Jesus is the destination or whether He's the direction. You actually hear sermons on that, you know, where uh, preachers and pastors would... Uh, claim that Jesus was this or he was that, I think we can get sidetracked to a degree to which we miss the all-important point. And here's what I mean. A lot of times when we use this verse, pretty much out of context, we're very good at that, we say, Jesus says, I'm the way. And then you hear sermon after sermon when people say, you see, Hinduism is not the way. Buddhism is not the way, this is not the way, that is not the way, whatever philosophy is not the way, but Jesus is the way. So we take Jesus and his statement about being the way in comparison with other things. But the reality is completely different. Jesus is not one among many other ways that happens to be the better or the best way. He is not the counterpart for all other ways. He is not simply the supreme way above all other ways. You see, before the coming of Jesus, all humanity was completely alienated from God. There was a big divide between the human and God because of our sinfulness. 
God is holy. He is utterly different. We cannot be in His presence as sinful people. We were at a distance from God. We were far away from God. We were separated from God beyond repair, beyond any hope. Friends, there was no way to God. Jesus says, I am the way, not in comparison. What he's telling us is that there was no way, and now I am the way. And you can say amen to that. That's going to get me going for the rest of this message. But you see, friends, God provided a way. He provided the way. Jesus himself became the way. Jesus comforts his disciples by revealing again and again to them his true nature. He reassures them by pointing to himself. Believe in God and also believe in me. He says, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Think of these moments in your life when you feel like you're lost. When life circumstances are not quite favorable. When prospects for the future don't line up too well. And look up to Jesus. He says, I am the way. He's the one who reassures you that you have full access to God. Because if you have turned your heart to Him, then you're restored to that right relationship with God, the way God created you to be from the very beginning of human existence. Nothing is more comforting in life than to know God for who he truly is. To know God in His fullness. But thank God Jesus doesn't even stop there. He comforts the disciples that by telling them one more thing. We turn to verse 7. Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know Him. And you have seen him. The words of Jesus are plain. But Philip, another of those 12 guys, probably some of the other disciples, again missed the point completely. Verse 8. Philip now addresses Jesus. He thinks, that's my turn now. I need some clarification here. He says, Lord, show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. He says, show us the Father. Philip is probably expecting some sort of a miracle that Jesus would perform something that would be a divine healing or something, anything that would demonstrate who God the Father is. That expectation, that demand is awkward in itself. It's ridiculous. Because Philip and the other 
11 disciples have been with Jesus for three years. They've seen by the hundreds those miracles, those divine healings. Jesus delivering people from evil spirits, casting out demons, restoring people to life. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Now watch what he says here. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. In other words, he says, well, you've seen it all. You already know it. What else do you need? But one of the most stunning statements is really in chapter uh, in, um, 14, uh, verse 9, towards the middle. I think this is uh, probably one of the most phenomenal statements in the whole New Testament. Jesus says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Think about this for a second. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Nothing's more comforting in life than to know God for who He is, to know God fully. The author of uh, Hebrews, in the very beginning of that letter, verse 3 says this, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, chapter 2, verse 9 says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Did you get that? It's amazing. They got it later on. Paul's got it. Whoever wrote the letter to the Hebrews got it. Again, Paul says, in Christ, the fullness, the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. You see, we live in an age of conspiracies and big interest in hidden knowledge and secret codes. We're often tempted to assume that there may be something new that we can discover about God. Sometimes teachers and preachers go around and tell others that they've gotten a special revelation from God, something that nobody's ever figured out about God. Friends, let us not be fooled. I know you've helped me before, but I want to pause here, and I want you to help me again this time. I want you to turn to one of your neighbors. Uh, let's say, turn to your left, if there's someone to your left, and just tell them, let's not be fooled. Hey, listen, 
How about you turn to your right? Be a little more vocal. Let's not be fooled. Can you tell me that? Oh yeah, amen, amen. Let's not be fooled. I hope we understand the implications of the words of the Lord Jesus Himself. He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. <laughs> In other words, if you've gotten to know Jesus, you already know the Father. My question is, where do we get to know Jesus from? Okay, for those disciples, they were right there, physically present in uh, physical bodies, right where Jesus was. They were with Him for all this time of His ministry around. But we're not there. We're about 2,000 years later. So where do we get to meet Jesus? How do we get to know about Jesus? The answer is not Google. It is God's written word. The Bible is God's very own revelation to us. There is nothing outside of that book that will surprise you about God. There is nothing outside of this book that would be new to us except for what God has already revealed to us. He has already spoken in the person of Jesus. He's already spoken in His own revelation. In His own self-disclosure to us. There's nothing hidden about God. He's already revealed to us everything we need and everything we can know about Him in the person of Jesus. You want to know God? Read the Bible. I encourage you. Explore who Jesus is and everything that God says about Him. Everything that He's said or done. You see, friends, it is that claim, it is that affirmation that Jesus is using to comfort His disciples in their distress, in their anxiety. Nothing is more comforting in life than to know God for who He truly is, to know Him fully. Amen. Amen. Amen.